Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Hi, and welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. Some of you may know, because I smuggled it in once or twice before on this podcast, that one of the original names I had as a suggestion for this podcast was Living Life Light and Dark. And I think, although I was told that it was a little bit too bleak, that people would be a bit off-put by the, uh, the dark bit, I think today's conversation with my guest Thais Gibson really helps us to understand that we can make light come from the dark moments as well. That there is hope that we can heal from the difficult wounds we've incurred in the past. The difficult traumatic experiences we've had can be reprogrammed and can be healed and moved forward from. So today's guest is someone I actually really, really connected with and we kept chatting with afterwards. And I wish almost that we'd recorded some more of the chat that we did afterwards because it was really, really deep and meaningful to think about how light and dark occurs in our life, how we can counterbalance some of the darkness that we encounter as therapists as well. There's a lot of theory in today's episode when we're talking about research and, and uh, evidence around attachment. But listen carefully, dear listener, because there's a lot of golden nuggets in there as well. And I have tried to kind of pause and slow us down to really reflect on what happens if we heal our attachment wounds and traumas. What happens in our relationships today in the present moment for us as adults when we look back and do the inner work to heal the things we experienced as children. So I hope you will enjoy today's episode because I really, really did. And without further ado, I want to introduce you to my guest. Thais Gibson is an author, speaker and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is extremely passionate about personal growth, which you will hear in this interview, the subconscious mind and connecting with others. With an MA and over 13 different certifications ranging from CBT to hypnosis, Thais strives to continually learn and grow. Thais is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their lives. After overcoming her own challenges with addiction in her early years, Thais is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful or limiting programs in their own mind. She is focused on helping people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance and personal freedom in their lives. And in this episode, which is quite a vulnerable one, as I'm being blessed with guests who are very forthcoming and self-disclosing about their own hardship and how that has shaped their lives, we also move into thinking about pause, purpose and play towards the end. So let's dive in and welcome Thais Gibson. Welcome to the show, Thais. I'm so, so happy to have you here. And I just wanted to start by saying thank you because I know that you do a lot of these kind of things. You get a lot of the podcasts and you're very busy and I feel very grateful to have been able to connect with you from the other side of the planet, actually. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me and you're wonderful. I'm really looking forward to this. We've had a little chat already and sort of admiring each other's screen backgrounds and talking a little bit about how to make this a nice, safe, contained conversation. Because I guess some of the things we're going to talk about today might be where people might feel triggered when they think about their own attachment styles or how those patterns show up in relationships. And I've had other guests talk about this um, on the show and it's been so well received and so popular that I thought I want to get another person come into this and you, you do a lot of expertise in this considering the book you've written about this. So why don't we start by telling the listeners a little bit more about your story? Yeah, so um, I guess how I sort of got into all this is definitely through my own personal um, sort of challenges. I definitely had a lot of childhood trauma related to attachment 
and, you know, grew up and, and was an athlete and um, was trying to sort of get a, a soccer scholarship to a D1 school and had all this focus there and ended up having a bad knee injury and having to do a pretty in, invasive surgery. And that was basically followed up by um, becoming completely addicted to painkillers at, at 14 years of age and, you know, not really understanding what addiction even really was, not understanding what withdrawals were when I went through my first experience of withdrawals, you know, going down sort of a pretty dark path. And I think at the time thinking like, what's wrong with me? You know, what's going on? Why can't I stop this? Why am I seeking these things out? And it was very scary for me because prior to that experience, I was like on this great track and this A student and, you know, athlete and sort of high achiever. And it was sort of like, what is going on? And feeling like I started really introspecting at a young age because of that and having to try to figure stuff out. And at the time, not really feeling, you know, of course, as most people feel in that situation, like they can go to anybody and share about it and talk about it and ask for help. So that sort of kicked off my, my journey personally into trying to figure things out. And, you know, I, I sort of fought this like seven or so year battle with almost daily use of opiates and, and constantly like journaling about it, like writing at night, like I'm going to avoid the girl in the hallway that I get them from. And I'm going to draw, I'm going to walk this way and I'm going to, you know, and just trying to like put all these strategies together to not keep repeating the same patterns and just feeling constantly like, you know, one part of me is saying, this is it. This is the last time I'm not going to do these again. And then repeating the same pattern pretty much daily and just feeling very helpless to myself. And um, <clears throat> I did end up going to school and I did end up, you know, getting a soccer scholarship and all that stuff. But I was really struggling on the inside and ended up trying like a, a rehab program in the summer, like all kinds of things that, that weren't working for me. And um, one day I was in a, a psychology class and the, the professor was talking about how the, the subconscious mind works. And I had a friend sort of come to me and say, yeah, yeah, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And for me, that was this huge light bulb moment about, oh, that's exactly my battle every day. It's like my conscious mind saying, that's it. We're going to be sober. We're not going to keep repeating these patterns. And my subconscious mind being like, no, we're going to keep avoiding pain and numbing pain by using painkillers. And so that was a huge moment for me. And it really kind of diverted my path to, to get really into um, a lot of the hypnosis, a lot of the subconscious mind type of patterns um, that ended up being my way out. Like that ended up being a big part of how I healed and got sober and felt really good. Um, and so that definitely redirected me. And as I sort of unfolded along that journey of trying to understand things, I realized like a lot of the pain that I'm trying to run from or hide from or avoid has to do with attachment trauma from childhood, has to do with really painful attachment patterns and um, how that was sort of affecting my subconscious mind and then creating this sort of filter that I see and interact with the world through. So it definitely kickstarted my journey in, in that sort of way um, at a pretty young age and, and ended up being a huge blessing long-term as I was able to sort of work through those things and then share different things from a perspective that engages the subconscious mind and unconscious mind in the process of healing. Well, that's really powerful to start the uh, the conversation today with so much kind of self-discovery and self-disclosure. And I think it's really powerful. We've had other guests on the podcast before who have been very vulnerable with their lived experience and sharing that with others, which I think really helps to normalize that we've all gone through hardship and pain and that there is, I guess, there's a blessing in disguise sometimes when there is um, a lesson in there, when there's learning. And as you were speaking, it sounds, I mean, I'm just kind of noticing how remarkable it is that you've done that recovery that you took so much ownership and accountability for it so early but also how common it is that we keep falling back into the same patterns even when we have the best will in the world and we think I'm going to crack this and then we keep getting pulled back into the same pattern so I'm just wondering as you were talking about the sort of the high achiever side of things you were the kind of a student and um, the athlete and I guess anyone who's been you know a, a performing athlete knows that it's sort of about pushing yourself and uh, achieving, you know, breaking your goals and achieving more and more, I guess, did you bring any of that into your recovery? I mean, as <laughs> trying to think about being like perfect at recovering? Um, that's a fantastic question. I would say like it, it ends up being a blessing at that point. Because I think I was I was in a lot of pain. Like I think one of the biggest for anybody who's ever struggled with addiction especially if somebody's in a position where they want to get sober and they're really trying to like live a normal life. I think one of the most defeating things is just feeling like you lose a battle every day to yourself. Like just feeling like it's, it, it's a, to me at the time, I would be like, I feel like I'm being tortured by this experience. Like 
every day being like, this is the last time I'm not going to do it, trying everything to like pour my will into ending this and then always repeating the same patterns and just a lot of like self-loathing that comes out of that. So I think because of how much pain and we know the mind is wired to avoid pain, when I thought that there was like an out and oh my goodness, this is explaining things and I think this is going to be my way out of this. I like poured into that. Like I, I basically probably became addicted to learning and trying to heal and trying to figure things out and trying to seek for answers. And, and as I sort of started putting pieces together, that like quote unquote high achieving part definitely served me at that time. I, I don't think there was really a perfectionist part. I, I think that I, I sort of had this, this awareness. So at the time, um, and, and I don't often share this, but I'm happy to share this here at the time I I sort of, and I'm definitely not recommending that this is how recovery should go for people. I do believe in like AA programs and rehab and NA programs and all kinds of things. I think it's really important to have structure and support. I think personally at that time period of my life, I was very young. I was like 19 or 20, really, really starting to figure some of these things out. And I ended up sort of being in a position where I I was like, oh, I, the rehab, you know, going to rehab didn't work for me. The AA programs and NA programs scared me. And so I, I started doing it sort of on my own through learning. And of course, I would have these relapses and, and moments. And then finally, I was off of painkillers for a while. But I, I really started, I kind of like transitioned into drinking a lot more. And I remember having this um, evening where I was, I was living alone at the time. I had just broken up with a partner who was um, also really struggling with addiction. And I was sort of like having to kind of go a separate way. And I remember I would, I was still in school and I was still working and I would go to school and go to work and I would come home and I couldn't not drink a bottle of wine and finish the whole bottle of wine. And it would be like a Monday evening by myself. And for me, like these were still huge strides at the time. Like I'm like, I'm way more sober than I've been since, you know, an early teenager, but I was kind of feeling defeated. Like I would start telling these stories in my mind in my internal dialogue, like, oh, I'm going to go backwards. Look, I can't even stop drinking a full bottle of wine. And I would notice these patterns, you know, observing myself and, and beating myself up in my internal dialogue. And then the next thing is I'd be like, oh, whatever, you know, and, and just go buy another bottle of wine and just keep drinking. And, and I noticed that there was this very strong relationship between how hard I was on myself and how much that sparked me to want to drink more and, and numb more. And I realized like, okay, there's a pattern here. And for me to like really try to set this to rest, I'm going to have to learn to be compassionate. I'm going to have to learn to have really kind internal dialogue. I'm going to have to learn to focus on my wins and how I'm succeeding instead of like beating myself up for every little mistake that happens. So I think I was blessed in that sense where I was doing a lot of meditation, a lot of observing my mind um, and trying to find out the thought patterns that were in there and what was sort of leading to that point and realizing, okay, there's a really, you know, if I want to be in recovery, part of it is recovering my, my compassion towards myself as well. So I think I sort of developed that at that time, which didn't make me too much of a perfectionist. It sort of released me from that. Um, but I know a lot of people do absolutely struggle with um, perfectionist tendencies, and that can be really difficult when going through recovery. Yeah, I imagine because it doesn't allow for any setbacks or any any times where we wobble where we struggle to kind of keep on the path that we decided to to follow to help ourselves absolutely and I think a big part of you know when we when we're looking at recovery you know we have to get outside of our own perspective it's you know a lot of what we've usually been using as methods for our lives have not been working in many ways so it's sort of like being able to observe those methods observe our own patterns and be able to be like, okay, this is causing pain. This is hurting me. And let me target those things at the root because just trying to suppress symptoms at at the conscious mind's level, just trying to put the pain, throw the painkillers down the toilet or get them away from you or not take them or not use or not drink or whatever it is for, for whatever people may go through at different periods. That is still, it's, that's the symptom, right? We use to escape the behavior. And so the behavior is usually preceded by belief patterns, thought patterns, unmet needs. And those are the main things that are causing an emotional output to take place. And and emotions are affecting our neurochemistry because they're largely made up of neurochemical reactions. And then neuroscience has proven every single decision we make is actually based on our emotional state. And so even people who think they're very logical, rational thinkers, um, a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, um, and I believe it was 2008, um, discovered that that improved very conclusively that every single decision is emotional. So it's like if we want to stop a painful behavioral pattern that's that's not good for us, 
we have to first figure out like, okay, what needs is the, are, are these behaviors meeting underneath and how can I meet those needs in a healthier form? So if I'm trying to numb pain, instead of taking pills, how can I go discover what that pain is and, and work through that and address it and meet those needs and show up for myself differently? And then, you know, if I'm also working at the thought or, or belief level, I have to be careful with the stories I tell myself and, and the thought patterns that I allow to sort of permeate my day and, and sort of clean up those root level causes to then affect the behavior at the symptom level. Absolutely. And I think that's, it's really powerful to consider that how much of our decision making is, is based on an emotional reaction, because the, the pattern you're describing there of moving from one kind of addiction to another, you know, going from painkillers into alcohol, the pain was coming with you. You just changed the, the the method of numbing. And I think a lot of people are unaware of what they're doing, that so much of their pain is an emotional pain that they're trying to numb. So I guess the, the reason I kind of wondered about your um, bringing in sort of high achievement into your recovery journey is because whatever we were doing before we decided to work on ourselves, we will bring some of those pattern into it. So if we are a high achiever or even kind of perfectionistic in our standards, then we will attempt to do our own recovery um, and our healing in a similar fashion. And I guess that's where we can get caught up in some of those all or nothing patterns and being really highly self-critical or hard on ourselves for when we don't meet the standard we've set up. So I think you're reflecting on some really important things that I wanted to ask more about around so the emotional pain and the numbing. Um, How do you think that people can heal kind of pain that occurred early for them in their childhood, early kind of attachment um, difficulties. So one thing that was really interesting to discover is there's there's basically two root causes of emotional pain. So two reasons we feel negative emotion. So one is unmet needs. And if we look at it, that's actually a great thing because, you know, historically, when we had hunger pains, we would seek food or we felt uncomfortable from the cold, we would seek shelter. So pain is there to help us grow and evolve. And it's there to basically get our attention and point us in a different direction so that we can adapt, we can survive, we can grow. So, so that's pain. But every time we have unmet needs, especially if there's some, some really important human needs that we have that are consistently or pervasively unmet, it's going to create this output of like pervasive emotion that's going to be affecting us. So that's one side of pain. The only other way we can feel emotional pain is through the, the meaning we give to circumstances. So it's the thought patterns we have or the belief patterns that are being triggered because they've been imprinted from our sub, at a subconscious level from the past and they're, they're being brought up in the present moment. So let's just say, for example, that there's a child and let's say that, that young individual, let's say it's a little girl and maybe she has a very critical parent, let's pretend. Well, if her parent is very critical all the time saying, you didn't do this well enough, you're bad for doing this, what often happens is a large portion of our own internal dialogue in our adult lives is, is often like a reflection of how our parents spoke to us in our, in our upbringing. And we basically internalize that and then we use that in the relationship to ourselves. So whatever we're exposed to repeatedly, so things that are modeled to us, the ways that we're, we're spoken to, um, or any firsthand experiences we have repeatedly in childhood, all these things program the subconscious mind. So the subconscious is, is essentially programmed by repetition plus emotion. So whatever we're exposed to all the time, we start recognizing, okay, these, these patterns are showing up in my subconscious mind. And they become a part of our own patterning. So what's really interesting is, and in the words of Dr. Gabor Mate, he says, trauma are the things that happened that shouldn't have happened. So somebody being verbally abusive, let's say, and the things that didn't happen that should have happened. So things like not getting proper emotional nurturing in childhood, being emotionally neglected. There's this big unmet need for emotional connection. And what happens is because our experiences create these imprints at a subconscious level for us, this then becomes the reality that we live in and the filter we see the world through. So we are often in this state of basically like re-traumatizing ourselves on autopilot because we are constantly, whatever needs were not met, we're constantly still not meeting in the relationship to ourselves or whatever stories we, we adopted because of things we were exposed to, like being not good enough or being a bad kid or whatever it might be that was impressed upon us from our, our childhood experiences. This becomes a, a large portion of what affects our internal dialogue throughout the day and the meaning we give to our experiences. So somebody may be late to work and get in trouble and they're going, oh, it's because I'm not good enough. I'm going to fail at everything. And, and you know, th- we give that meaning based on our already pre-existing subconscious wounds. So a big part of what I found to be really interesting is I sort of started off my personal journey 
really working on those parts, realizing, okay, trauma for me was the unmet needs. And it was the painful narratives I adopted because of the experiences I saw or things that I was exposed to. And so really trying to like discover and then reprogram those things at a subconscious level, like change my stories about myself, use repetition plus emotion to rewire and then meet the unmet needs. And so that became a big part of my healing journey. But when I started learning about attachment theory and attachment styles, I realized like it's so interesting because this was sort of quite a bit later on after I'd been in school for a long time and done like 13 different certifications and definitely been like addicted to learning. I realized in my practice, I was seeing about 40 people a week, which was probably still some like high achieving, there's some high achieving patterns. Um, And I was realizing, wow, like in, in people's attachment styles, it almost fits into these like perfect little boxes of, you know, somebody's dismissive avoidant. These tend to be their biggest unmet needs. These tend to be their, their biggest stories they have about themselves and emotional patterns that accompany them. Somebody's fearful avoidant. Okay. These tend to be their biggest unmet needs. And these tend to be their biggest stories. And I found that the specific core wounds and unmet needs were so strongly correlated with people's attachment styles. And it sort of gives people this like handbook of, okay, if this is your attachment style and we can discover these patterns, okay, these are going to be your painful behaviors. These are going to be your big core wounds and painful stories about yourself. And these are going to be your greatest unmet needs. And so out of that, we created integrated attachment theory, which is this idea that you can sort of overlap these areas. And it gives you, when you then take subconscious tools for reprogramming and you really do deep work on, on that part of the mind, um, you can release a lot of these patterns. You can change a lot of these things. And this is actually a huge way of recovering from, from past traumas that have imprinted the subconscious. Which I guess provides us with a lot of hope that even when we have been through unfortunate experiences, like you said, trauma are experiences that should not have happened it's not like all hope is lost as an adult we can still do these things to reprogram to to heal these core wounds and I think it'd be really interesting to really slow down this and and get into sort of the the examples you're giving there of what you in your book talk about as the sort of basic four what would be some of the the really important things that listeners need to know about the basic four when it comes to attachment theory yeah so I'll go through and and just sort of share a different uh, the four main ones and sort of the the patterns and the unmet needs. And I think people usually really recognize themselves in a lot mm-hmm. of this. So our first attachment style is securely attached. Um, this is the only secure attachment style. And, and essentially, our attachment style really starts in our very early childhood through a lot of our interactions and patterns with our caregivers. And I sort of like to compare being in a relationship with somebody with a different attachment style, whether it be a friendship, a family relationship, a romantic partnership, a relationship with your kids, it's sort of like you're playing a board game, but you have a different set of rules for the board game because our attachment patterns are basically the subconscious rules that we use to relate to others and that have been programmed into us from a very young age. So with securely attached children, um, there's a few key things that, that really tend to happen. So they tend to feel like their feelings can be heard and recognized and made space for. They often have caregivers that come towards them if they express emotions as opposed to avoid them or shame them. Um, so they learn that their feelings are safe. They feel like their needs are safe to express because often when they do express, their their needs do get met or again, a caregiver comes towards them or as they evolve through childhood, there's space held to negotiate needs, even if the need can't actually be met. So Maybe we're not going to give a child the okay to have candy at 11 p.m. when it's bedtime, you know, at 8 p.m. But you may, at least the caregiver will say, hey, I see that you want that. But unfortunately, you know, that can't happen. You have to get some rest. So at least there's space made to acknowledge and validate that those needs exist throughout the upbringing. Um, And then in in, in a very young age, because our attachment cell first develops between the ages of zero to two years old, but it changes a little bit over time. So as we grow and evolve, you know, our subconscious mind can be reprogrammed at any point in time. So it sort of shifts as we get older. And that's why it can shift at any point in our adult lives if we put in the work as well. So, so the securely attached child basically learns, my feelings matter, my needs can be made space for, I feel seen and heard, and I deserve love, and I can trust love, and I can trust a healthy connection, I can rely on people, and it feels good. And so they grow up, to have those patterns in their interactions with others, which often leads to much healthier and rewarding relationships. And then we have our three insecurely attached styles. You can think of them in a way as being on a continuum. Um, At sort of one end of the continuum, we have our most avoidant, which is the dismissive avoidant attachment style. 
And this individual usually grows up with some form of emotional neglect. It can be in very hidden forms. So there can be like absolutely overt neglect where the child's needs are just not met, food's not on the table, you know, there's there's no order and structure and organization, and there's just purely neglectful parents. But there, there can also be sort of covert emotional neglect where we have parents who are maybe enmeshed with their kids and putting a lot of responsibility on the child to meet their emotional needs, but then not really showing up for the child's emotional needs. And we can also have patterns where there's you know food on the table and there's order and structure, but there's no space made to talk about emotions, to acknowledge emotions. And perhaps even the parents are quite emotionally repressed themselves. And so it leads to this really strong lack of modeling about emotions and, and being able to rely on other people. And because children are wired for that and need that attunement at a young age, when that's not there, basically what happens is a child, they, they don't have the ability to say, oh, my parents are emotionally unavailable. So instead, children personalize things and the mind naturally gives meaning as a subconscious strategy to gain certainty. So instead, the, the childhood mind will often go, okay, you know, something must be wrong with me because I need this attunement. I need this emotional connection and closeness and it's just not happening. So I must be defective in some form. They also learn to feel that trying to rely on, emo on other people emotionally feels unsafe and gets them rejected and makes them feel weak and helpless. So these individuals have these imprints growing up where they've at a subconscious level, they have these beliefs that say it's unsafe to emotionally connect to people. I'll only be rejected. I am defective at my core. So I don't really want to let people too close to see or hear me because they're going to see that I'm shameful, that I'm defective for who I am. And they don't realize that all these imprints are governing their behaviors and, and how they show up. And so we'll often get these people in their adult lives growing up to really avoid relationships, to really push away when things get too close, um, to really reject emotional connection in relationships because they believe and they've been programmed to believe that it leads to painful outcomes. So this will be the person in relationships in their adult lives who is often afraid of commitment is very slow to open up if they do so at all, um, will often leave relationships when, when things get sort of past the honeymoon stage or even into the honeymoon stage of relationships. And so that's our, our dismissive avoidant. And I'm sure everybody sort of knows somebody or can relate to that in some form, like, oh, that's my brother or, oh, that's my sister-in-law or whoever it might be. So that's one. And then at the sort of polar opposite end, you have your anxious preoccupied individual. And the anxious preoccupied individual in, in their childhood usually experiences some form of repetitive emotional abandonment or perceived abandonment. And the anxious preoccupied usually learns at a young age, okay, I, I need my caregivers to survive. They usually do get some good amount of attunement from at least one caregiver, but it's usually juxtaposed by something else. So it's like they get this extreme positive, but then the juxtaposition of it, that being gone feels like this huge loss all the time. So it could be because, for example, um, when caregiver does leave in early childhood that somebody actually physically abandons. Um, but it can also be because one parent is very warm and another parent is very cold. It can be because both parents are very attuned, but they both work a lot. So there's this constant, you know, as we think of the subconscious being programmed through repetition plus emotion, there's this constant coming and going of emotional connection and attunement which leads a child to feel like, oh my goodness, there's this constant feeling of loss that comes up for me. And as a result of this, the anxious preoccupied usually grows up with really strong core wounds around, I'm afraid to be abandoned or I will be abandoned. I'm afraid to be alone. They're usually very sensitive to the core wound. I am excluded. I am not good enough. I am or I will be rejected. I am disliked. And we'll see a lot of the, the big fears um, for anxious preoccupied are, I am unsafe if somebody abandons me. And because they do have positives through their attunement with caregivers in childhood, even if those positives are coming and going or are inconsistent, they usually grow up to feel like, oh my goodness, I have to soothe and get my needs met only through others. They never really get this opportunity to focus on meeting their needs themselves. So they're very reliant on other people, which often leads in their adult lives to a lot of people-pleasing behaviors, to putting a lot of pressure on themselves, to really like abandoning themselves to try to become what they think people want for them, which kind of keeps that vicious cycle alive. Like I'm going to abandon myself to try to get my needs met from other people. And then if they abandon me, I have to abandon myself more. And there's, there's this lack of ability to fill one's own cup to a certain degree. And so these will be the big wounds, a lot of the, the patterns. And they often show up in relationships to become very clingy, 
very needy, very, a lot of their protest behaviors are, are really trying to hold on to people to not lose people. And what's really interesting is that often anxious, preoccupied and dismissive avoidance end up in relationships together. And there can be a lot of sort of turmoil that comes out of that. So those are those two. And last but not least, we have our fearful avoidant, which is also sometimes referred to as anxious avoidant or disorganized attachment style. And this attachment style is usually rooted the most in some form of trauma in childhood that was pretty consistent, which led to a lack of having an attachment strategy. So for example, if we have caregivers who, let's say one caregiver is an alcoholic or has a drugger or, or violence issue, anger problems, whatever it might be, if there's a lot of volatility or inconsistency in the home, what essentially takes place is this child never knows, like, can I get my needs met through my parents? Are they going to be attuned to me or are they going to be cruel or scary or am I going to feel completely rejected or, or denied? And so if you imagine, for example, that there's a caregiver who um, is an alcoholic, let's pretend, let's say the, their mother is an alcoholic. You know, one day mom is really sober and she's really sweet and kind and warm. Another day mom is drinking and she's extra sweet and kind and warm. Another day mom is drinking and she's very scary and unpredictable and angry. And another day mom is sober and she's going through withdrawals and, and she's really angry too. So this child never feels like, oh, when my parents are around, I can connect. Or at least in the dismissive avoidant case, my parents are not showing up for my needs. So I just have to learn to focus on meeting my own needs. And that becomes my, my strategy to survive. Instead, it's like, I never really know what's coming or going. And so that unpredictability leads to a lot of hypervigilance and distrust in this individual, where they're constantly forced to read between the lines, constantly forced to look for micro expressions and body language and tone of voice to kind of read into behaviors to adapt in the way that they connect with others. And so they usually grow up with a lot of the core wounds of both sides. They fear the abandonment, they fear being alone, excluded, rejected, not good enough. And they sort of have the, the dismissive avoidance side, the fear of I'm defective because nobody's showing up for my needs, fearing being trapped, helpless, powerless um, in relationships, feeling very disempowered by relationship dynamics and sort of afraid of, of what's happening. But most so the fearful avoidant grows up with trust wounds, feeling like I will be betrayed, I cannot trust, and, and a sense of unworthiness because usually their, their emotional needs are very unmet and they're sort of used as a tool a lot of the time to caretake for one parent or, or multiple parents. So that tends to be sort of the dynamic of, of the different attachment styles. And as I share some of these and people may hear themselves in them, it's really important to note that, you know, all of these things are just programs that were impressed upon the subconscious mind. And all of these things can absolutely be reprogrammed and changed. So if you hear yourself and you're like, oh no, I have all those core wounds, or I have those, those trust patterns that are showing up, all of those things can be changed with some commitment, some awareness, and, and some consistency in creating that change. And that's exactly what I was thinking uh, as you were speaking, that people might be sitting there ticking off the stuff like, oh God, those are exactly the core wounds I have, or oh no, those, the, those are my protest behaviors. And I guess, could you clarify what protest behaviors mean? Um, because it's obviously most people know what a behavior is, but the, to the term there is, is protest behavior. Can you clarify that for people to understand why it makes sense that they get caught up in those behaviors? Definitely. So the way I like to sort of teach people this and show this to them is, you know, our subconscious mind is like a needs meeting machine. It's always going to try to get its needs met in some form. And we're very survival oriented at a subconscious level. So our subconscious isn't concerned with getting our needs met in the best way possible. It's concerned with getting our needs met in the fastest way possible. So when we think of protest behaviors, they're basically behaviors that are some form of of rebellion in a way against the person we're in a relationship with, but it's really truly at its core a subconscious strategy to get our needs met when we feel like we can't get them met in healthier ways. So for an anxious preoccupied, for example, one of their protest behaviors may be calling repetitively, clinging, even though their partner you know, has set a boundary and said, please don't call me more than X amount of times. And so they know at a conscious level, but their subconscious mind does something to sort of violate the unwritten rules of the relationship as a strategy out of desperation to get needs met. And, you know, a dismissive avoidance version could be to just withdraw completely and not show up and just push people away and, and stonewall. And so what's really important to note is that our protest behaviors are not these conscious things that we're like, we're going to do this to, to hurt somebody. Even if we look at things like control or manipulation that shows up in relationships, 
you know, people become controlling when they don't have a healthy strategy to say, hey, this is my need. And, you know, can, can we meet this need? Can we brainstorm for how we can get this need met together? And instead, when we feel disempowered, it's left to the subconscious mind's devices. And now the subconscious mind is going to go in these covert ways to get its needs met because it's a needs meeting machine. And that function is always running on autopilot with or without our own awareness. Mm. And that's really powerful that when we can become more clear on these things, when we can shine a light on the the things that actually are subconscious. Um, you talked about, a lot about awareness and actually doing the inner work around this. And one of the things you mentioned is the acronym RAIN. I guess that sort of connects quite a lot with with having the awareness. Can you explain a bit more about that as well? Yeah, so I, the way I like to share with people in a way that's a little bit more like simplified in terms of a tool is I would go into just a few short steps because the RAIN will be a very long you know, sort of space to bring people through. But I would say Step number one, whenever we find ourselves in this space where we have a protest behavior. So, you know, the the analogy you can sort of relate this to is myself when I was struggling with addiction. It's like you have this pattern that's taking place where your conscious mind is saying, I don't want to do this or I know better. And your subconscious mind is pulling you in a different direction. And what I would say is the first thing that we want to start by doing in that case is be like, why is my subconscious mind pulling me in this direction? Why am I calling a whole bunch when I know that that doesn't end well in our relationship dynamic? Why am I pushing somebody away and stonewalling them when I know that this isn't the best thing for me? So step one becomes, okay, what need is this protest behavior trying to meet at a subconscious level? And step two becomes, okay, how can I get that need met in a healthier form? So instead of like, let's say I'm calling a whole bunch, okay, I'm trying to get certainty met in the relationship dynamic. Okay, now that I'm aware of that, what would be a healthier way? Oh, maybe I can just ask for reassurance in the relationship dynamic instead. I can say, hey, I'm feeling afraid and I need to know that, you know, we're, we're still going to work on this relationship together, that we're going to come out of this on the other side, that you still want to be with me, whatever it might be, if we can just find an updated, healthier strategy to get that need met that the protest behavior was attempting to achieve, then we can action that strategy. And that tends to be the fastest way that people can use just in terms of like a three-step system that corrects these behaviors. That's really helpful. And that's something tangible for people to listen to, because I imagine that, you know, people who have not had any idea of these things going on in their lives, starting to get a bit of enlightenment as they're hearing you speak, it can be quite distressing to realize, oh goodness, I have things that are unhealed from my past, from perhaps my childhood. Um, and that's how it's showing up in my, in my here and now as an adult. And what's your best, I mean, I know it's really hard to give like, what's your best tip for these sort of, because there is no quick fix, but what's your most helpful advice for people to, to take away as a kind of hope around that when they're listening to you speak, you know, what, what can we do? For the future yeah. if the past has been really difficult definitely so so um the i realized i sort of like never answered your question properly but the the rain acronym basically represents that three-step system so the rain acronym is like recognize which is let's look for the behavior allow investigate and then nurture a solution or strategy right so it's sort of the same thing but the three steps are just a little bit shorter it mm-hmm. can be a good reminder to have that acronym in, in somebody's mind recognize allow investigate nurture however when people are going through this, what's really important to recognize is just these are patterns you learn from childhood because of different traumas that took place. And I think a lot of people think of trauma as being this like huge, painful thing. Like we go through all this trauma and it has to be a car accident or the death of somebody or something extreme, but really trauma is essentially just anything we couldn't properly emotionally process at the time. So it imprinted our subconscious and we stored it. And we keep reprojecting the likelihood of, of it occurring onto the future because we're trying to avoid whatever that painful thing was from the past. So if somebody has this traumatic event of feeling like they're emotionally abandoned as an anxious preoccupied in childhood, well, their mind's going to keep going, oh, what if we get abandoned again? This could take place at any time. And it's going to constantly reproject that back out. And so from that becomes a painful behavior as a strategy to solve for that. And when we can realize, you know, from a a compassionate perspective, hey, this is because of something painful I went through at a young age when I didn't have very much control and I didn't have, you know, the opportunity to understand what was happening because maybe I was very young. And I can know that 
you know, I wasn't born as an anxious, preoccupied attachment style. I became that way through conditioning, through a bunch of, you know, repetition plus emotion. And in the same way, I can recondition these patterns using repetition plus emotion. So for example, if I can now see that I have this protest behavior, I have this way of reaching out to get a need met that's not serving me and not serving the relationship, well, I can actually work to reprogram that core wound of I am abandoned and I will, or I will be abandoned. And I can also start reaching out and programming and conditioning myself to use healthier strategies to get my needs met. So asking for reassurance as a substitution for calling repetitively over time. And, and that means like proactively, that means letting your loved one know, not in the heat of the moment when you need to call all that, those times because you're seeking those, those pieces of reassurance, letting your loved one know just on a regular basis, hey, reassurance is important to me. And, and that looks like words of affirmation. That looks like, you know, acts of service, you showing up, you doing things for me, um, you, you expressing care consistently and letting somebody know proactively helps to fill that bucket so that in those more reactive moments where you're feeling that way, there won't be the same degree of neediness because the repetition plus emotion of that, that being a, a normal sort of theme in your relationship where somebody is showing you they're, they're there, they care, they love you, you know, you're, you're basically preventing those protest behaviors from having to come up because those needs buckets are filled. And so I talk a lot about how it's important to be able to introduce those things as themes into our relationships. But maybe even more importantly, we have to learn to nurture those things in the relationship to ourselves. So we have to learn to look for, well, where am I abandoning myself all the time? Oh, I put my feelings and needs last all the time. Oh, I constantly don't set boundaries. I'm constantly people pleasing at the expense of what I actually want. I'm constantly forgetting to self-care. I'm, you know, so we, we keep the, the traumatic cycle alive. Like we have to ask ourselves if, if that happened to me all the way back in childhood, and let's say somebody's now in their forties, how has this stayed with me for so long? The past has been gone for maybe 30 years. And part of what is a necessary ingredient for it to still be there. It's literally the fact that we've been replaying these wounds and these cycles in the relationship to ourselves, which is a very real thing, on autopilot over and over again. And that's why these things are still here with us. And that's why they get projected into our relationship. So when we can learn to clean those up by changing those patterns within ourselves repetitively in a way that elicits an emotional response, this is a major facet of how we reprogram and as we change those things within ourselves and then combine that with communicating our needs in relationships and allowing ourselves to make space for them to exist, now all of a sudden we're in a position where we can get these needs met. We have these healthy um, forms of, of these things showing up and we can actually change those patterns once and for all. And that's really powerful because that means that there is hope to do these things, even if your partner isn't willing to address things, for instance, in couples therapy or relationship counseling, that there is a real, it's a real uh, you know, scope for doing some of this inner work just all by yourself as well. Just looking at your side of the street and taking ownership of that and doing that inner work to heal some of your own wounds and traumas. And then the positive ripple effect that will come from that when you start to act in a different way. Even if your partner isn't willing at this point, it can still really be powerful for you to take that accountability. And then hopefully, and this is certainly something I see in my work as a couples therapist, sometimes that can make the other partner more willing because they're starting to receive the benefits of the inner work of partner A and then partner B is more willing perhaps to join along with the, with the journey of, of change. So it's really helpful to explain that to people that there is hope there. There are things we can do to reprogram, things we can do to be more conscious and aware and mindful of how these things from the past, almost like the ghost in the machine, show up in the present moment so that we can change for a better future. And I think that's a really nice summary of some of the things you taught me today. As I'm listening, I kind of feel like if your book and my book met and had a baby, it would be like the ultimate couple's book. <laughs> Basically, because you cover a lot of the things I sort of glanced over. I didn't cover enough of the attachment because the editors were like, well, you can't put any more words in. <laughs> it's just too many words. So I feel like your book is such a compliment to you, to the compassionate mind training and compassion um, kind of uh, couples compassion stuff I do in my book to help people make those changes and, and come to terms with their past and turn towards themselves with more compassion and turn towards their partner with more compassion and that can be really hard to do without having first that awareness of the, the attachment wounds that we're carrying around so it's been really really powerful to listen to you speak and I wonder 
you know, what, what have you seen happen to people who have done that inner work? No doubt very painful to try to readdress these wounds and heal them. What have you seen happen to people who do that inner work to heal attachment traumas? How does that improve their lives as adults? Oh, it's so beautiful, honestly, because, you know, I think really relationships in our life show us to ourselves, right? Like whatever we're really struggling with in our relationship partner is usually a reflection of a subconscious pattern we still have in the relationship to ourselves. So if somebody doesn't listen to us and that really triggers us, when we look within, often we'll find, oh, I'm not listening to myself very well either. And we'll, we'll usually see a lot of that. So we can change those behavioral patterns. And the other part is not just meeting those needs and expressing those needs and learning to clean up that part of it, but it's also the thought patterns. Like if we feel constantly minimized, not good enough, okay, where are we telling ourselves we're not good enough? Where are we overcritical and how can we change those patterns of internal dialogue? And when we really show up for the needs and we show up to change those thought patterns, people like it's not just the relationships that heal. It's, it's really the relationship to self that heals. And when that's taking place, that spills into every single area of life. That spills into our own personal, mental, emotional well-being. That spills into the spiritual area of life, if, if that's a, an important part to us. That spills into our romantic relationships, our friendships, our colleague relationships. You know, it really touches everything. And so people often find that when they come to work on, you know, the relationship and then they do some of that deeper healing and recognition of how that's actually a lot to do with the patterns in the relationship to self and they clean those up first, they'll usually say things like, you know, I came into, you know, let's say for example, our school, we came into PDS to heal a relationship, but we actually ended up healing the relationship to ourselves and finding ourselves instead. And I think that has the ability to really touch everything. And I think it's really important for people to know just because you grew up with these patterns or just because this was a, a normal part of your life for a long time doesn't mean it can't be changed at any point in time. And you know, reprogramming something usually takes about 21 days to, to deeply reprogram a pattern or a story we have about ourselves. Like I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, I'm, I'm undeserving, I'm a burden for having needs, you know, whatever patterns or, or belief programs we have. And, and then it takes about up to 63 days to really kind of like hardwire it, it almost down all the way into the unconscious mind. And so when we show up for those things, we may have had decades and decades of stress or struggle around specific needs or around specific stories we have about ourselves, but it can be changed in like a couple of months and, and in a very, you know, quite permanent way. So it, I think it's important for people to, to know that as well. And again, I keep coming back to the word hope, because I guess it gives us hope, even if we've been through a lot of pain and trauma and hardship, it doesn't mean that that is kind of hardwired and fused into our identity, because often the, the hopelessness I met with when I sit with couples who have that kind of broken background, perhaps, they feel like this is just who I am, and it's really difficult to change. And I guess there's a lot more fluidity and plasticity to our brains and to our way of being than we've we've known in the past and that means we have hope that there is change uh, possible for us so i really wanted to conclude this section of our chat today we're just saying thank you so much providing hope for people that it's not too late to change uh, and that's why we have cliches like we can teach old dogs to sit so if we didn't believe that you know you and i would be out of business um if i didn't believe that change was possible so I wonder if we can conclude our chat today with thinking a little bit about the sort of the pause, purpose and play element of what well, this is the name of the podcast. So I ask all the guests who come on to think a little bit about how they find pause, purpose and play in their lives. And we've already started our chat today by thinking of, of you being a high achiever, or maybe at least in the past having been a high achiever. Maybe that is a narrative or story that you have rewritten. I don't know. But you have at least achieved a lot, um, you know, despite of or, in, you know, because of those um, narratives. I don't know. But how do you then switch off and unwind so that you find pause and rest and balance from the achievements? Yeah, um, I am an avid meditator. I love meditation. I really believe in like downregulating. And, you know, I think we can often spend a lot of our day in like sympathetic nervous system mode. So, you know, I, I take a time out at lunch um, and I meditate for a few minutes. I start my day with meditation. And, and then, you know, at the end of my day, it sounds like a funny thing, but it's just, I love this. This is like one of my favorite parts of my day is I'll finish my day and I'll go lay in my bed for like 15, 20 minutes and just lay there and not really like put my phone away, not looking at anything, not doing anything. And just kind of being in a, in a, a space of being like just being able to sit with myself and my thoughts and kind of reflect and not even meditating where there's like, I have to 
sit a certain way and close my eyes and cross my legs, like not even anything like that, but just a, a chance to kind of unwind from the day. Um, and I find that, you know, really interesting things happen during that time, like little insights or little ideas or, you know, that just kind of come to me instead of me trying to think and do and, and be in that constant state of go. Um, so I really believe in that in terms of pause. I really like that as well, because it gives us that permission to do unstructured meditation or, or just being. I think there's a lot of confusion around how meditation has to take place or there shoulds around what we're supposed to be doing. But I guess it's a reconnecting with that. It doesn't have to be that complicated, just lying there in your bed. And I, I often give the kind of recommendation of just lying there and just feeling your sheets with your toes. And that mm. can be quite nice. So just doing something where you're just connecting to the present moment without it being must do and do this sort of 20 minute seated meditation. Like there's many different ways where we can just connect to the present moment and meditate. So it sounds like you find pause from a lot of that kind of unstructured, just being with what is in that moment. So that's really powerful to know. And what about then purpose? Because I imagine hearing you speak so passionately about the work you do, that that's giving you a lot of sense of purpose and meaning. Is there anything else you want to add about purpose that we haven't yet covered today? I, I think I was very lucky um, in a sense that I had like a very strong emotional response my whole life to what I like and what I don't like. And that sort of allowed me to be really tapped into like, this is what I want. And I'm very clear about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to settle for anything else. And I really do believe that it's important. Um, you know, we all have this, I won't, you know, open this whole can of worms right now, but we all have a, a specific set of subconscious personality needs that really drive our behavior. It's like our, these subconscious priorities we live by. And what happens is sort of like that idea with addiction is when we're living outside of our own personality needs, we'll find that we experience a lot of resistance and procrastination. So for, for example, my own personality needs are emotional connection, personal growth, spiritual growth, and comfort is a big one for me. And so what happens is, you know, if you then took me and put me as, as an accountant, well, I'd probably have my conscious mind say, let's be an accountant and sit all day and crunch numbers. And, and, you know, an accountant's a wonderful job, but my subconscious mind would be like, no, we want to learn about growth and people, and we want to connect with people. And, and so I would have this constant push pull, just like that idea of addiction. Like I want to be sober. I want to be sober. And my subconscious mind being like, no, we have different priorities. And like we said, like the subconscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And so, you know, we kind of get into this war with ourselves in a way. And we'll often experience that in our adult lives. It's like procrastination, self-sabotage, when self-sabotage is usually actually just a strategy to, different, to get different needs met than your conscious mind intends. And so, you know, something that was very useful in terms of purpose for me is, is listening to what I wanted and listening to like what I wanted to do and allowing myself to have permission to move in that direction. And I think we all have unique things that we want and we, uh, desire. And when our conscious and subconscious mind are working together on things, we often find that success and achievement and all those sort of more surface things come quite easily because we get to pour our heart into something we really want and then everything else can kind of follow. And so in terms of purpose, I think it's really important for us to introspect, to know ourselves, to know our needs and to give ourselves permission to move in that direction. It doesn't mean quit your job right now and <laughs> go and you know start that business tomorrow. We can make smooth transitions and make plans to do so, but it does mean honoring those things and acknowledging them and allowing ourselves to move in that direction over time. Um, so I think purpose is a huge part of listening to ourselves and knowing what we desire and, and acting on that. So really tuning into your heart's desire and using that as your compass, but still at the same time making wise decisions, like you're saying, not just quitting your job tomorrow, but actually making a wise decision means that we're planning a you know a, a strategy and then moving in that direction consciously to not self-sabotage further so I guess, I guess there's a lot more action potential there if we are aligning what we believe in or how we feel strongly about something with what we're also doing you know uh, we I sometimes talk about it as the values gap uh, you know there's a gap between what we value and what we hold dear and how we're acting and if we can close that gap we're more much more likely to feel fulfilled and meaningful and successful in life so that's also, uh, there was a nugget there of something you said that I think was really, really, really important that people might have been kind of picking up on around the self-sabotage bit that I, I'm sure we could just talk about for another hour um, around <laughs> how people, um, but why people self-sabotage? Do you want to just say that one more time? Because it was really important. 
Yeah. So there's, there's no actual thing as such thing as self-sabotage. Everything that we experience as self-sabotage is just a subconscious strategy to get different needs met than our conscious mind intends. So if somebody, for example, is like, I'm going to start a new diet and eat healthy, but they constantly self-sabotage. Like I think the stat is 88% of people fail fail their new year's resolutions on like day four. And it's because what happens is the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious. So unless we set that goal and we have personality needs or these, these subconscious drivers that are like, I'm really interested in health and fitness and nutrition and well-being, And, you know, then we're probably, if our, if our personality needs are more like social connection, emotional connection, family, security, comfort, then we're going to find that our conscious mind says one thing and our subconscious pulls us in a totally different direction. And so when we can learn to actually understand what our subconscious drivers are and what's taking place through really introspecting about our own needs, then what naturally follows is we can start overlapping those things so they can start working together. So we can say, for example, okay, if I want to eat healthier and exercise more, I can take cooking classes with friends and family if those are my big subconscious drivers. I can go to exercise classes or on hikes with friends and family, or I can exercise in the comfort and security of my own home if those are big personality drivers. So when we find out what those different patterns are, we can actually find overlaps between our conscious and subconscious mind, and it really ends those cycles of self-sabotage and procrastination. We can't do that without, without that sort of awareness of what's sort of bubbling beneath the surface there for us. So if we don't notice it, we can't adapt to it. We can't make changes that will make it suit us and be tailor-made to us to, to give us the best chance possible for change, I suppose. So it's really, really powerful to, I've said powerful five times today, I think, is because what you're saying is powerful. And I'd imagine listeners are like almost wanting to sit here and take notes because there's a lot of things that are important. But th- thankfully, they don't have to because they can go to your book as well, which we'll mention in a minute. But I wonder also lastly to think about play. You know, how do we, how do you find that you kind of let loose or shake up rigid rules or kind of being playful and spontaneous and having fun? Yeah. So I love, I think this has always been an important part of my life. I'm lucky I have a partner who's very much on the same page. So we'll go outside. We'll, we'll sort of go on and eat. It's been interesting through COVID. We're finding creative ways, but we'll go outside and walk to new places and just sort of explore and try new things. Um, and, and we're very playful in our relationship and laugh a lot. And I really believe in like taking time out. And I find that as we were mentioning the pause part earlier, I find that it's hard to get to play when we're not pausing first, mm-hmm. but when we can unwind and we can like be and not have this pressure of doing, 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 then we sort of get into this natural, more creative flow state of like being playful and being able to be present and find the little playful things in the moment that we can interact with. And so I find that that pause, I love that you have pause purpose play because that pause, I think, allows us to pause and introspect and find that purpose and also downregulate so we can get into a mode where play becomes a natural thing that we then do. Um, so I find, you know, little adventures, little explorations to be a really important part of play and just laughter and being able to laugh at ourselves and be okay with mistakes and and sort of be able to chuckle at different things that we may do as, as all really important parts of play. It's because I'm bringing a smile on my face because it's essentially kind of almost reading out my one-liner about what I, when I when I talk to people what pause purpose play means to me and how I created those kind of procedures or processes that I help people move through in therapy because none of it is new. I mean, pausing is not something I've come up with. Mindfulness has been around for 3,000 years. So it's just about how we package it together to help people move um, when people come and want to figure out where do I go next in my job? You know, what's the next career move for me? How do I find my purpose? Actually, really difficult to do that when you're working, uh, you know, 60 hours a week and feeling burned out and you kind of needing to slow down first, finding that pause to then really reflect on what matters to you. What's like you're talking about these other personalities, like how can we figure out which direction is the right one if we don't have attunement if we haven't tuned into ourselves and what feels meaningful so definitely agree with that of how they flow nicely together that's hard to move into playfulness if we are stressed out if we have that sympathetic nervous system activation if we're in threat mode we're not meant to be chilling out and playing we're meant to be on guard and defending ourselves so being able to slow down that and and relaxing by unwinding and kind of releasing from the threat soothing the threat system is really really key to move into play I really, really enjoyed our chat today. It's been so many important things coming up and I think we could chat for a few more hours over a cup of tea. If we, if we had, you know, if we were a bit closer, then I would just ask you to pop around for a coffee. But it's been really nice to chat to you. And I wonder if you can give a final takeaway to the listeners 
you know, something you can give them as a tangible kind of permission that you want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them? What would that be? Yeah. Um, and I've really, really enjoyed being here with you too. So thank you so much. Um, I would say one of the most important things, just sort of piggybacking on what we just talked about is like part of healing trauma and any painful patterns we have is giving to ourselves what we didn't get from parents or upbringing in childhood. And so a lot of that for most of us becomes, you know, being able to forgive our mistakes, being able to be compassionate in our internal dialogue to ourselves, being able to be okay that, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to have these these misgivings at times. And that's part of our human experience. And when we can really give that attunement to ourselves and we can give that forgiving sort of compassion to ourselves, that actually is a huge part of healing and becoming our best self. So I think that's a, an important reminder for people at times. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure that a lot of people will be taking that on board and trying to chip away at these experiences. And to do so, how do they get hold of your fantastic book and where do they find you? Um, so we have our book up as well on um, our website, so www.personaldevelopmentschool.com. And we just basically have um, over 45 different courses in there and a community of a few thousand people and and um, sort of lots going on in there. So you can always check that out. And I put free content every single day out on YouTube, which is Personal Development School dash Thais Gibson. And that's also where I found some of the things that uh, I kind of built as questions today. So some of the things that we've uh, talked about today, you can also go to Thais' uh, YouTube channel and watch more videos to dive deeper into this. Or if you felt that we were going over this quite quickly today, I mean, it's two professionals talking to each other. You know, we, we use a lot of lingo. Um, if you want to have a deeper dive, you can go to Thais' website, and uh, which I'll put in the show notes, and also have a look at her YouTube channel. And so I just want to say thank you again for coming along today and sharing your valuable lessons. And I'm sure I myself will have a little browse around your courses and see because there's so much we can always continue to learn. So thank you again for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this so much. Despite having said the word powerful about a million times in this episode, I'm going to say it again. That was really powerful for me to sit with Thais and be able to give the space to hear about attachment styles and all the things going on for people who have had these different core wounds and these different protest behaviors show up in their lives. And like I said in the episode, it's almost like our two books have met and found a, a kind of a magical overlap. So if you feel like you're interested in what's been said in this today's episode, if you want to understand your attachment style and heal some of the wounds you've been through, have a look at Tyser's book, Attachment Theory, a guide to strengthening the relationships in your life. And then it might be quite a nice transition to move into my book, The Lasting Connection, developing more love and compassion for yourself and your partner. As a couples therapist, and as well as an individual therapist, I get to sit with people who have realizations about their lives, about what's shaped them, about the experiences they've been through, and also gaining insight about how that shows up in the present moment. How... Things from the past have almost served as ghosts in the machine and it's really difficult to break out of those repeated cycles that they get into time and time again. In my new course, The Compassionate Couple, which is built on my book, I help people go through that to build more compassion and insight into why do I do what I do and what could I do instead? So learning to communicate better with your partner in a way that helps you to understand that a lot of the, the patterns that show up for you is not your fault. There have been things that your, your brain has selected for you. The defensive strategies that you've been falling into over the years, they have served you well, but they may no longer serve you as well. So come along to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash the compassionate couple to learn more about how you can address some of these patterns, the ways that your attachment style may make it difficult for you in your current adult relationship and developing more love and compassion for yourself and your partner. And until I see you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. 
this checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. You can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media. <laughs>